Welcome to the Ideas and Action podcast, brought to you by One World, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Chris Jackson, Editor-in-Chief at One World, where our mission is to publish voices and stories that give us new language to rethink the past, understand the present, and imagine new futures. From Ibram Kendi to Carla Cornejo Villavincencio, Tanahasi Coates to Alicia Garza, Kathy Park Hong to Brian Stevenson, and Kali Fajardo Anstein, our authors' work and their lives are dedicated to telling stories and exploring ideas that help us reframe our understanding of the most critical issues in our world and in ourselves. Join me and the One World team each week as we explore the challenges facing our society and share ideas and perspectives from our authors to help us truly see the world we're in and imagine the one to come. I'm here with my colleague, Nicole Counts, Senior Editor at One World. Hey, Nicole. Hey, CJ. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. Today, we're talking about activism and organizing and movements for social change. Specifically, we're going to try to answer the question, how does a moment of injustice evolve into a movement that changes our politics, our language, and our sense of what's possible? This is a huge topic to tackle. So for this episode, we're going to focus on one of the signature inflection points in the recent history of American and really global activism, the Black Lives Matter movement. To help us understand how Black Lives Matter began and how it might yet evolve, we spoke with two of our authors, Wes Moore, the best-selling author of Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, which recounts the aftermath of Freddie Gray's killing in Baltimore in 2015, and Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter and author of The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. Westmore is the best-selling author of The Other Westmore and the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. But if you asked West, the most important thing about him probably is that he's a son of Baltimore. After the Freddie Gray police killing happened in 2015 and the city responded with a five-day uprising, West went back to his hometown to talk to people at every strata of the city to reconstruct what happened over those five days and what happened in the years before that led to it to try to understand what made that moment different. Here's what West had to say. This story not only serves as a bit of a precursor and a bit of a warning that people did not take heed to, it's very much reliving history when we saw how this thing continued to unfold. The, the story of Freddie Gray, and just to add context to, you know, for if everyone, anyone is wondering about the story of Freddie Gray and, or, or what exactly happened at that moment, this is a 25-year-old young man who did the crime of making eye contact with police. That's why he was chased, because he made eye contact. He ran, he was caught and arrested, and an hour after he was arrested, he was in a coma. A week after he was placed in a coma, he died. And this led to weeks of protests that took place in Baltimore, all peaceful protests and people demanding transparency and justice and accountability. Actually, the evening of when he was laid to rest was when you really saw the Baltimore uprising. That evening, the National Guard was called in, the, the military forces came in. In many ways, Freddie was more of a larger spark that set something off, but that was very known and common to many people in Baltimore. Because the reality is, if you just look at the two years before Freddie Gray, in Baltimore alone, there was Anthony Anderson, there was Chris Brown, there was Tyrone West. In fact, one of the people who, uh, who, uh, who I profile um, inside of the book is Tyrone West's sister, who every single Wednesday, she holds something called West Wednesday. And where she goes out and she protests. 
the fact that there has been no accountability, no police accountability for the murder of her brother. And so when Freddie Gray happened, it was really more of like a, there was, there was this spark that lit off in Baltimore. And part of it was because it was coming off the heels of everything else that was happening. It came literally right off the heels of Michael Brown. It came right off the heels of the launch of this movement called Black Lives Matter, where it went from initially being in this hashtag to now being a true global movement where you can move and mobilize quickly. And so Freddie Gray, that happened really as, as Black Lives Matter was really hitting a stride that wasn't necessarily there with Anthony Anderson, Tyrone West, et cetera. The other thing that I think is important to recognize about this moment and, and why in many ways it differs from the moment we're seeing right now is that the bar has been raised in terms of how we define progress. When we had the uprising in Baltimore, people think that the thing that kind of calmed people down was the fact that the National Guard was brought in. That's not true. You know, bringing in military forces generally doesn't have a tendency to calm things down. And so when the National Guard came in, actually the Saturday after the uprising was supposed to be the largest protest that Baltimore had seen thus far. And that was the one everyone was like, this is gonna be the big one. And it didn't happen. The reason it didn't happen wasn't because the National Guard got brought in. The reason it didn't happen was because Baltimore City State's Attorney, Marilyn Mosby, the Friday before, pressed charges against the six officers. And it was almost like a celebratory feeling in Baltimore where people were like, wait a second, you mean they were charged for that? Because that wasn't the expectation. The, the expectation and what people had seen in precedent with all these other cases that came before was the general idea was people heard about it, there was a payout and it went away and no one was then charged for the crime. And she charged them. And that had a way of bringing the temperature down because in many ways, people in Baltimore at that point were like, I cannot believe it. We actually might see justice for what happened to Freddie. And you look at also then months after, there was this consent decree that the Department of Justice put out. And the consent decree, just like we'd seen in other cities such as Ferguson, which was laying out a pattern and practice of systemic violence and systemic and appropriate behavior that the police department were doing particularly to black communities. Now you fast forward, and this is what I mean by the bar being risen. You fast forward, uh, two of the officers were found now guilty, charges were dropped in the other four. And once a new administration came on board, the consent decree was rolled back. And so I think the bar has now been risen that, you know what, charges are not enough. We want convictions. Consent decrees are not enough because that can just get rolled back depending on who's in charge and who's in power. You need laws changed. You need structural change. And so that's where I think that the, you see how the difference between what happened and also where the case of Freddie Gray in Baltimore really was an important and serves as an important example and model for how people are looking at what's taking place right now. You know, something I really love about this clip is that Wes is saying that there should be this expectation of justice and of care and of, you know, treating each other um, like humans. But I, I just am not sure if I believe that 
we as a country feel that charges aren't enough, you know, that we that we deserve convictions. I mean, I'm thinking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and I'm curious if you believe that the bar has really been lifted, you know, if, if you think as a country we're, we're truly ready for structural changes. Right, and I think that's one of the really interesting things about the way Wes was talking about this and thinking about Freddie Gray in retrospect, because he didn't just talk about Freddie Gray as, um, as a launch event, you know, for Black Lives Matter and for protest and for rethinking the criminal justice system. He showed that it was already part of a long standing pattern of police killings that had been happening in Baltimore, which I think is so important to realize because sometimes people say, well, this one thing happened, like, why is the world like coming to an end? Because one thing happened, one police officer killed one person. Why are people protesting all over the world? But that's not it. Of course, it's like a culmination of events that have happened over many years and people who've been out there protesting those events alone for many years. And then finally the world starts to observe and, and um, collects around it. I think it's an interesting question whether or not that makes a difference, whether or not that has, has raised the bar in this country. Black Lives Matter has been around as, as a you know, sort of organized movement for you know, five or six years now. And do you think that the response to say Freddie Gray is different than the response to George Floyd? First of all, I think it's deeply uh, heartbreaking for me that when I'm thinking about both Wes and I'm thinking about Alicia's books, you know, both of their 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 art, but also their lives have been um, in some ways affected or structured around these killings. So we have for Wes, you know, we have Freddie Gray, but like you mentioned, we have Tyrone West and we have Anthony Anderson and everyone else who has been um, killed in Baltimore. And for Alicia, there's Oscar Grant, you know, and so. I think for every black person in America, there is, I'm going to say like the one killing that, that maybe. Right. Like the origin story. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Like that we all can say in our backyards, we, you know, here's this person that, that lived so close to us that was, you know, killed and there was no justice. Um, but something I think Wes did around Freddie Gray's killing is that he, you know, he and the whole community of Baltimore, I mean, what they, what they did was they actually gave justice, not just to Freddie, but to everyone who has been, you know, uh, killed and, and left dead on the streets. And I think that does feel different than what happened in other cases where one person became a national icon, where maybe with Freddie Gray, everyone who has been affected in Baltimore, a light was shined on them. Yeah. And I think the thing that's kind of exciting is, you know, I go back to my own, like, kind of personal history around, I think that's such a great point, which is that for so many Black people in this country, there is the moment that is their kind of initiation into this, you know, which is this moment when you're, you know, kind of scales fall from your eyes and you realize that the people who, you know, you've been told are there to protect you are, you know, might kill you and might get away with it. And for me, it was back in the eighties, you know, when I was a kid, let's say, and um, it was, there were a series of killings, you know, that happened. Al Sharpton, this is when he first sort of emerged onto the scene protesting. And Al Sharpton was considered to be a very marginal figure in America and the protest happened in a very localized way. And then you skip ahead to what happened with Black Lives Matter with um, like a Freddie Gray situation where the entire city takes note, the entire city goes up in flames, the, the country and the world watch. But then you take George Floyd, not only did you know, the affected community respond and not only did the city itself respond, but people marched and chanted that man's name all over the world. And I think this kind of is part of, I think the interesting question at the heart of this, which is the movement certainly grew. The movement on the streets mm -hmm. grew, the protests have grown. The question is, will the outcomes be different? 
Um, right. And I think that remains, interestingly, an open question. And I think that's kind of what Wes was going at. But I think one of the things that we've identified is that we need outcomes that go beyond recognition or even um, one person's situation being resolved in some way. But we need outcomes that change things structurally. Right. And we need outcomes that don't just rely on the community to take care of itself. I mean, I think that's something that's interesting with Baltimore because I didn't grow up there, but my dad's from there. My Most of my family is there. So I grew up you know, in this community that I feel um, was told in many ways, you know, that that we take care of our own, that we take care of ourselves huh. and that if something has happens to us, you know, of course we all go out and we march on the streets and, but then what happens, you know, months later, like when we're thinking of like community centers, when we're thinking about community activists and organizers, and we're thinking of, you know, systematic problems and things that need to be changed. What I hope is that we don't just notice that the community takes care of itself, but that we actually, as global citizens, you know, feel the responsibility to also help those communities. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Um, but and what I really love about what Wes was saying here is that he he does put it into a lineage of mm. I think a lineage of pain and suffering, but also a lineage of response and the responses being not just, again, like a matter of increasing in um, visibility, but also hopefully sharpening in, you know, strategically so that we're thinking mm -hmm. about, well, what is the response that can move the levers we need to get the power we need to create the changes that we need? In addition, there being, you know, I think a necessary kind of catharsis and public protest and a sense of communion around grieving and mourning and um, holding people to account. And I think it's important to kind of see that there's both, you know, a past that I think is a little bit, um, not a little bit, but troubling, but you can see the ways in which our responses have been both consistent and the ways that they've evolved. And now we'll hear from Alicia Garza about her own journey into racial and social justice movements and the origins of Black Lives Matter. It's really when I was in college though, to be frank, that I got politicized around racial justice. And, you know, at that time, uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, there was a lot happening in terms of the aftermath of uprisings that um, had shaped our entire country. Uh, you know, we all watched as Rodney King was brutally beaten on video cameras, which um, were not actually popular at that time. And then, of course, if you fast forward, uh, you fast forward to Oscar Grant in my community, which was just a few blocks from my home. And I remember coming home after a New Year's celebration and turning on the television after midnight and seeing that just three blocks from my house, Oscar Grant had been shot in front of a train full of observers. And it just so happened that a young person who was interning at an organization that I worked at um, was the, one of the people who caught the entire thing on camera. And it actually became a part of the movie Fruitvale Station. And so, you know, there are these inflection points where we start to understand that our lives are bigger than us, but we also understand that our lives are being shaped by people other than us. And we have an opportunity to decide if we think that that's right, if we think that that's fair, if we think that the ways that our lives are being shaped lead us towards wellness and dignity, humanity and wholeness, or whether the way that our lives are being shaped are leading us towards punishment and criminalization and injustice. And at each one of those inflection points, we get to make a choice about who we're going to be. 
So that was Alicia Garza. Maybe most of you know who Alicia is. Uh, if you're not, you probably should. She's one of the um, most important activist political organizers in the world today. The founder of Black Lives Matter, the person who first put the phrase Black Lives Matter out into the world. Um, and again, I think we've seen something really interesting that's happened over the last year. Alicia has been doing this work for decades. But in the last year, we've seen this, these words that she put out in a Facebook post in 2014 on the lips of literally millions of people around the world in what became the largest movement in modern history, which was the Black Lives Matter movement and the responses and the protests across the world. And Alicia, the beauty of, I think, her own vision about what activism is, is that it's so holistic. It's really about not just the issues that we're trying to change, but the people we want to be and the relationships we want to have and how all of those things work together to create the world that she describes, the world that we deserve. And uh, what do you think about that idea of like the world that we deserve is the world that we're working for? Well, I love that even in, you know, 2014, when she was saying Black Lives Matter, you know, what Alicia does is she never questions our humanity. She always demands it. In the way that she lives her life, she gives us a lot of space to think through, you know, not just how our lives can be more just or more um, equitable, which is of course important, but she gives us the space to think, you know, how can we be more tender towards one another? How can we be full of more joy? How can we be more loving? I think something that's interesting about her demanding, you know, our humanity instead of questioning it is the phrase Black Lives Matter is something that first started in the community as a, as a real celebration of our existence and of our history and of our future. You know, Black Lives Matter is really in a lot of ways of saying Black futures matter. I am curious, you know, how she felt from 2014 to 2020, where, you know, people have co-opted it, people have turned it. In December of 2020, pro-Trump rallies where they were burning the Black Lives Matter flag and banners, you know? So I'm, I'm curious how she sees that evolution of Black Lives Matters and, you know, maybe where she sees it going in the future. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think the wonderful provocation of the phrase Black Lives Matter is that it should go without saying, right? She's not making some wild assertion or some, you know, um, unprovable statement that she's making. She's right. making she's saying this commonplace thing. And yet it drove people crazy. And first it was all <laughs> lives matter, then it was blue lives matter and anything but just the simple acknowledgement that black lives matter. And in some ways it was both incredibly affirming as a phrase, I think for a lot of black people, um, but it was also incredibly revealing what the responses mm. to the statement that black lives matter the negative responses that it somehow engendered. And I think that was the thing that was so moving to me when I watched this movement catch, you know, or at least the protests in the streets catch wildfire over the course of 2020 was that it just was being stated as if it mattered and it was a matter of fact. Banners were being hung and signs were being put in people's windows and lawn signs were being put on people's lawns. And the thing that started off as somehow bizarrely controversial was accepted as being well, what Alicia would say is common sense. Now, when you change the common sense, you know, the society, you change the society. And if we can make the value of Black Lives Matter to us as a society where it becomes common sense and we can start to base mm -hmm. our policies and our, and our politics with that simple common sense premise that Black Lives Matter, it can be transformative, which is why I think you see so much violent 
counter reaction to it. Even now, as you said, in Washington, D.C., people were ripping and burning because changing that common sense can change the country. Here's a little bit more from Alicia on that. You know, in 2013 and 2014, we were pariahs in terms of politics. We would say Black Lives Matter and people would say all lives matter. And that was the most common response. We were uh, not seen as a legitimate political force. We weren't seen as um, a movement. We were seen as you know, people who were radicals. And even in our own communities, right? We were seen as people, for example, who were trying to move a gay agenda and interrupt a black agenda. Right. There's lots of ways in which um, we're in such a different place than we were then. There is still work to be done. I don't want to paint a rosy picture here. I mean, frankly, um, we are still watching the extrajudicial murders of Black people on television because we capture them on cell phone cameras. And it is only when there is um, an outcry that there is any semblance of political will to address it. We are going in a circular pattern in relationship to how we conceive of how we solve this problem once and for all. I do worry that just like in 2014, where we got body cameras as a result of, you know, protests that Ferguson leaders led um, in relationship to the murder of Mike Brown, maybe today what we get is better training or, you know, nicer police. But fundamentally, there's still a big challenge that we're facing, which is, what do we do about the role of law enforcement in our communities? Is it enough to have better training or to restrict their practices? Or do we actually need to narrow the focus and the role of law enforcement in the first place? It's, a, it's an important conversation for America to have right now. Um, for some, it's an uncomfortable one, but I can say, you know, seven years ago, Black Lives Matter made people uncomfortable. And being uncomfortable is actually good for this country. Um, people were uncomfortable when Black people were fighting for the right to be enfranchised. People were uncomfortable when women were fighting for the right to be enfranchised. And look where we've come, right? Now, it's not uncomfortable to believe that women should have the right to vote. It's not uncomfortable for us to believe that Black people should have the right to vote. Does it mean that those rights aren't still under attack? Absolutely not. But it means that we are in a different place because we have those rights and we're defending them as opposed to um, needing to create those rights. And so, um, yeah, history is not circular in that way. It is, it is a spiral and I believe really deeply and profoundly that um, we're closer than we've been before. And that gives me hope. So I really love Alicia's idea that she talked about there that history is not a circle but a spiral, meaning that, you know, we're not just going back and forth and back and forth into the, you know, from a good situation to a bad situation, but that if we're you know, intentional about it, we can make sure that we're constantly getting closer and closer and closer to the thing that we want, even if there are moments of reversal. So what do you think about that idea? Do you think that even as we are seeing, you know, the murders keep happening or the extrajudicial killings, as she put it, which is maybe more accurate, keep happening, but do you feel like in what's happening right now in the present, that there's a sense of progress. I mean, I think there's two things that are happening, right? Like the collective society is uh, grappling with certain things and we are watching society do that. So we were watching us, you know, collectively march on streets. We're watching us like collectively shift the art that comes out, the way in which politicians talk, et cetera. But then there's also these internal shifts that happen. And I think 
our progress on this earth, it, it has to be a spiral. It can't just be a circle because I do think with each generation, we get closer to, I think, allowing ourselves maybe to understand ourselves better and to seeing how that impacts the world. So, I mean, it's interesting with the spiral, right? Because you can be either getting closer to this idea or we can, in some cases, broadening an idea. So when they were talking about corporate responsibility or maybe the role in, in corporations in you know, justice or, or civic engagement, as well as when they're talking about, you know, even the question of what do we want our law enforcement to be or to give us is a radical question, you know, and I think a question that even 10 years ago, we wouldn't have allowed ourselves to think about as a country. I think that's one of the interesting things too about what Alicia was saying, which is that, you know, the job of a, of a you know, an activist is not necessarily the same as the job of a politician. And it can happen over a period of time that it can start off as something that feels like it's on the margin. But eventually, through the work of activists, the marginal idea gets to the center. And that's how something like Black Lives Matter started. And as she said, Black people, some Black people, traditional civil rights leaders objected to it. White people thought, you know, all lives matter. <laughs> but through persistence, the radical idea moved to the center. And I think that's mm. one of the most encouraging things about you know, any kind of discussion of activism is you realize how much activism has already accomplished at the same time. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, Nicole, you and I went down to see uh, Brian Stevens's Memorial to Peace and Justice. And there's a phrase emblazoned in the memorial, which is, you know, the arc of history bends toward justice, which is something that Brian says all the time. Another one of our authors, ta Coates, always says, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, there's no reason that history is bending anywhere. History is chaos. We don't know where it's going. And I think, mm. you know, people like Alicia, are maybe on a different place, which is it can bend toward justice, but we have to do the bending. <laughs> There's nothing in the physical right. universe that demands that it goes toward justice. But if we keep throwing the target further toward justice, we will bend our society into that direction. That's the part that she's saying is, you know, Absolutely. being uncomfortable is good because I mean, I actually think most people would think of history as a, a straight line. You know, we think of history as this thing that happened before. And then we think of the present as now and we think of the future as this thing that we don't have to deal with. And I, I think the spiral is actually, that metaphor is, is actually showing us kind of the uncomfortable, like going through those loops might be uncomfortable for us internally Absolutely. and then for us as a country. But I think that's how we bend anything towards justice. You know, the word radical, it, it's so interesting how like certain words have become taken by mainstream now. And some of our most radical ideas are actually, to me, just the most caring ideas. And I, I just offer that because when I'm thinking about these spirals and when I'm thinking about when I'm the most uncomfortable with the change our country needs to do or the change that I myself need to do, I always think of it as, but is this change going to lead to the most care? For the country and for myself. And I think that's important. I think it's important to remember why we are doing what we're doing. So let's hear from Alicia about how and why she and her fellow activists organize and how activism starts with real and deep human connection. There's no recipe here. It's really about instinct. It's about network. It's about timing. And frankly, it's about being able to move when you just know it's right. Everybody longs for connection. That is what makes us human, literally. Um, we can't live in isolation. And in fact, when we put people in isolation, you actually see folks deteriorate. When you hear stories of people who are in solitary confinement, they tell you that literally they start to deteriorate because we as human beings depend on connection to survive. Um, it is how we read the world. It's how we read one another. And 
you know, making sense of this moment, organizing is fundamentally rooted in connection. And when I was being trained as an organizer, I was always told that organizing wasn't about getting somebody to get involved in your campaign. It wasn't about, you know, getting somebody to use your slogan. It was fundamentally about relationships and everything moves at the speed of relationships. I'll give you an example. When I was coming up in organizing, the only way I could get people to do something that was outside of their comfort zone was to spend many hours on their front porch um, at their kids' recitals, <laughs> you know, uh, meeting their friends at their kitchen table while they were making dinner after a long day of work. People need to know that they can trust you. And frankly, you know, when we look at all great movements throughout history, we notice a similar response. Uh, you know, when we look at the last period of civil rights, people moved at the speed of relationships. And that was both for connection, but it was also for safety, right? Um, in certain environments, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if people didn't know who your people were, they didn't mess with you. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can tell you my Southern relatives are still the same way. Mm -hmm. Folk are like, yeah, but who are your people? Like, where do you come right. from? Right? And it's a way for us to make sense of who you are, but also what your motives are. And I think moving into this moment, I think you saw people rush out of their homes in the midst of a global pandemic because being isolated in your house while you're watching on television, somebody who looks like you being brutally murdered while the officer looks into the camera while he's doing it, it makes you feel so incredibly alone and fearful and hopeless. And so why people pour into the streets is to be connected to the energy of other people who are sharing a similar experience. Every one of us who has experienced injustice in the world wonders if it's only us or if other people have had that experience too. And movements fundamentally bring together people who long for not feeling gaslit <laughs> around the experiences that they have every day that they know are wrong, but they can't quite place why or who's responsible. And movements also give us an opportunity, a way to challenge and channel the anger, the isolation, the fear, and the rage into something productive. Sometimes it becomes a law or a policy. Other times it becomes an ecosystem of organizations that are fighting back against the injustices and ways in which our communities are disenfranchised. Um, so when you look at, you know, organizations like the Movement for Black Lives, you'll see, right, that this is a beautiful, rich ecosystem of Black organizations that are working together and independently to impact the lives of Black people. And in that coalition, um, we suddenly, again, feel less alone, less helpless, and we feel more powerful. When we feel powerful, we take risks that we wouldn't necessarily take alone. Um, but the very nucleus of being able to go from, why is this happening to me, to I'm willing to be somebody who changes it, fundamentally requires connection and relationships. I love what Alicia offers, you know, that there's no recipe for how we should be the quote unquote perfect activists or organizers or you know citizens to one another but one of the things i'm hoping for and thinking about for our future is you know i hope we begin to ask what people need you know or i hope 
that we ask them, how do they want to be cared for? And if they can't answer that question, I hope we give them the space to discover what they need. I think too often we go into communities and we tell them, you know, how something should be. I think that's the American way. And I, I hope what's going on with with Black Lives Matters right now and with this turn of the presidency, I, I hope that we begin to, you know, take some of the ego out of it. Someone once told me, if, if you're the kind of person that is the first person to talk in a room, I hope that we learn how to sit back and listen. Yeah, you know, Alicia said something really wonderful, I think, in that same conversation about like what it means to be an ally or to be someone who's like working in a movement is to say to the other people in the movement, you know, I see you, you know, and I mm -hmm. see what you need and you see me and you see what I need and we're going to work together to get there, even if there are other things, you know, where we have differences or whatever. And I think so much of what hampers our politics is an inability to see each other, to really see each other, which is why Alicia talking about, you know, movements moving at the speed of relationship, I think is such a great way to think about the future, like as a path mm -hmm. forward. Like, can we see each other? Can we take the time to see each other instead of being like yoked to our own particular hobby horse or being overly judgmental about people using, you know, language that's maybe different from our language because they've been educated in a different way than we've been educated. You know, her thing was always like, how do we move toward like seeing each other's humanity? And if we can see each other's humanity, we're going to find out that we actually probably want a lot of the same things. And it just mm. takes that act of sight and it takes that sense of relationship and not thinking that politics is something you can do at some huge remove from actual people because politics mm. ultimately is about our collective needs and our collective action and that means we have to collect <laughs> and um and i think that's a beautiful way to to see you know that's certainly part of alicia's origin story as an activist i think that was the whole idea of black lives matter was this in fact in that first facebook post she said you know black people i see you and I think mm -hmm. it's the same thing across the board with our politics. And I think that's something that Alicia has modeled. And I think it's a way, you know, for me, like, you know, where there's so much despair about all the polarization that's going on right now in our politics. And I think that the way forward is just, I mean, it sounds a little naive in a way, but I think it's actually proven to be true again and again and again is, you know, making space for each other and really, and really mm -hmm. seeing each other. One of our authors, uh... Tanahasi Coates, he said something that really liberated me. He said, once you once you figure out that our time on this earth, we're only going to move the needle, you know, an inch forward. We're, we can't make these systematic changes in these these grand ways because there's so much work that needs to be done. But but actually that notion actually frees us so much more to focus on what we can achieve and how we can achieve it in longstanding ways. And I mean, I don't think it's a simplistic viewpoint of just wanting to feel connection and to wanting to build these relationships because as you said, I mean, that's how something withstands. I mean, maybe that's how the spiral actually moves forward, you know, is uh, yeah. when we deeply want, we know one another. Yeah, I think that's true. I would love to end with, you know, along these lines of, of our thinking about our future and thinking about why we do what we do. I would love to end with something that Wes Moore said. I want my children to know the greatness that they come from. I want them to know their own history. And it's not, it's not just the history of William Wesley Moore and James Joshua Thomas and their own personal lineage, but I want them to know and appreciate the fact that they do come from the blood of Garvey and that they come from the blood of Shabazz 
and they come from the blood of parks and they come from the blood of king and they come from the blood of truth and they come from the blood of Robeson and they come from the blood of Baldwin. I, I want them to know that because also I feel like one of the most powerful things that we can do for our children and frankly, one of the most powerful things that we can do for all children is to help them to understand the power of blackness, the history of blackness. Why, why that when people are having conversations about equality, that, that we're, not, we're not begging for something. This, this is just a simple acknowledgement of not just our humanity, but the symbol of acknowledgement of our contribution. Thank you for listening to the Ideas in Action podcast by One World. For more information on the authors and books discussed in this episode, please follow at One World Books on Instagram or visit oneworldlit.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice. This podcast has been produced by Pat Stengo and Stephanie Bowen and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I'm Chris Jackson, and until next time, this is Ideas in Action.